Well, good morning, church family. I love you all like family, and I love being here with you. Uh, let me give you a couple of glimpses of what we're planning on for the next couple of Sundays. Um, today, in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to look at just half of that passage that Elise read. And then two weeks from today, on September 10th, which is a day that we've set aside for baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're planning on Josh Anderson preaching uh, some of these important verses about taking up our cross and following Jesus. But then next Sunday, uh, we have something uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, we have invited our friend, our brother, Ray Mensa from West Africa, uh, whose ministry we support in Ghana and beyond Ghana. We've invited Ray to come and preach uh, next Sunday here on Sunday morning. And so I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are as well. And then after that, a week from Wednesday, we're going to have a gathering here also uh, related to our church's connection with Jesus' global mission. And so Ray Mensa will be here on Sunday. Ray will be back on Wednesday night. And Ray and some of the brothers and sisters from our missions, our global missions task force here in this congregation, along with some of our youth, uh, are putting together some plans uh, to, uh, to inform us and to stir up our hearts and to get us in alignment with and praying in alignment with and living in alignment with God's heart for all nations. So that's just a few of the things that are coming up in the next few weeks. But today we're going to give our attention to just a few of these pivotal verses in the middle of Matthew chapter 16. We're going slowly through this pivotal section of Matthew's gospel. We're in a series going all the way through Matthew's gospel, but we've slowed down here in Matthew 16 to pay attention to these pivotal verses that tell us very important things about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and what it means to follow him. Today we'll pay attention to just a few verses. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. And I won't waste any time in getting to the heart of the issue in these verses, our passage for today puts in front of us a massive contrast. A contrast of, maybe we would say, unfathomable significance. It's a contrast between Peter's view of the cross and Jesus' view of the cross. Now, maybe we should say that a little more precisely. Maybe I should say that it's a contrast between Peter's first view of the cross when he views it only from the perspective of of man, to use Jesus' phrase from verse 23. So maybe we should say this is Peter's first perspective of the cross when he views it from humanity's perspective versus how Peter could later learn to see the cross if he learns to see it from the perspective of God, to use the alternative description that Jesus uses in verse 23. Or maybe we could call it a contrast between how Peter first saw the cross 
versus how Peter would ultimately come to understand the cross. But however we frame that, I think you see what I'm talking about. There is this contrast in these few verses in Matthew 16. And most simply, it's a contrast between how Peter views the cross and how Jesus views the cross. So in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, how does Peter see the cross? In Matthew 16, 22, we see a little incident that will make some of us chuckle. Let this idea sink in from verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside in order to rebuke him. If I could borrow the iconic words of Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic? Just a bit, don't you think? Peter is pulling aside Jesus in order to rebuke him. Right away we notice Peter's arrogance. He assumes that he knows better than Jesus. In addition to Peter's arrogance, we also notice his audacity. He not only thinks he knows better than Jesus, he's bold enough and courageous enough to tell Jesus all about it. Sometimes we assume, by the way, that if somebody is bold and loud and courageous... Well, then they must be right and we must listen to them and we must follow them. But Jesus sees more clearly than that. Sometimes people who are very bold and very loud and very courageous are also very wrong. Underneath Peter's arrogance and his audacity, Peter has an argument against What Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been talking, according to verse 21, increasingly about the fact that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And by the way, in this sermon, when I'm talking about the cross... I mean all of that in verse 21. All of that. Jesus has been talking about his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Jesus has been talking about his cross. Peter hears it and Peter has an argument against it. And at its core, here is Peter's argument. His argument is this. Jesus The cross is not necessary. All of this comes on the heels of one of Peter's finest moments. Just a few verses earlier in Matthew 16, 16, which we looked at last week, Peter recognized what none of the other disciples had yet recognized. He says out loud the truth. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. And for Jesus, that pivotal recognition of Jesus's identity opens the door for a pivot in his ministry. Now Jesus will begin to explain what it means that he is the Christ. 
And Jesus is going to begin to reveal that according to his understanding, if he is the Christ, then that means he must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. But Peter's argument is that all of this stuff about suffering is not necessary. And this willingness to endure hostility without retaliation against those who are in authority, Peter says that is not necessary, Jesus. This whole idea of first the grave before glory, Peter says, Jesus, I'd like to have a word with you. That's not necessary. Peter's argument is that the cross is not necessary. And we don't know exactly how Peter's reasoning led to his conclusion that the cross is not necessary. One guess might be that Peter is just impatient. Jesus, if you are the Christ, then can't we skip straight to the victory? Can't we just get right there to the happy ending? Another guess might go even deeper than that, though. Instead of just impatience, perhaps there is a deeper false assumption that Peter is operating on, a false assumption that God could never let bad things happen to good people. A few years ago, um, I was at our youth camp, um, along with uh, some of you uh, here with our church family, and I was spending time with some teenagers that year who really became friends of mine, teenagers who still now I count as really cool people, people whom I really, really respect People who I actually would say I genuinely love them with brotherly love. And several of them grew up in the Muslim tradition. And one of the things they showed me is that the Muslim tradition has a great respect for the name of Jesus And yet, they also showed me that the Muslim tradition has a very different understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And as we spent time comparing and contrasting what the Quran says about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and what the New Testament says about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, we noticed that the biggest difference of all seems to show up around the cross of Jesus Christ. My friends explained to me that according to the Quran... 
Jesus was a good man. In fact, he was a great prophet who spoke on behalf of God. But my friends told me that according to their religious tradition, Jesus did not die on the cross. In fact, they told me Jesus could not have died on the cross. Why not, I asked. And I thought at first, perhaps because I'm trained in history, I got a degree in history, and that's kind of how I think. I thought at first they were going to dispute the eyewitness testimonies that I'm aware of about the death of Jesus. I thought this was just going to be a disagreement about historical events. But it turned out their reasoning was more deeply logical than that. We might even say more deeply theological than that. Why not? Why could Jesus not have died on the cross? Here was their answer. Because Jesus was a good man and God would not allow a righteous person to suffer like that. And in the middle of that conversation, I realized just how reasonable my Muslim friend's view of the cross really seemed. In that moment, I began to realize that my Muslim friends thought about theology about on this point, saying God would not allow a righteous person to suffer. I realized my Muslim friends thought about theology the way that a lot of people that I went to church with thought about theology. And I realized that they thought about theology the way that a lot of cool people that I grew up around who just were into vague spirituality also thought about things. A good God couldn't allow people to suffer. And I realized that my Muslim friends sounded a lot like Job's friends in the book of Job. And I realized that my Muslim friends sounded a lot like the atheistic philosopher David Hume. And I realized that my Muslim friends were articulating an argument that I had felt deeply in my own heart many times. An argument that says, God, if you are good, how can you allow good people to suffer so much? God wouldn't allow a good person to suffer like that, would he? I realized that in that moment, my Muslim friends sounded like Peter when he, hearse, when he first heard about the cross. Jesus, let me take you aside and rebuke you. All of this stuff about you needing to suffer and die and rise again, that's not necessary. Surely there's a way to open heaven's doors without the cross. Coming back to Matthew 16, 23, I need to be clear that I don't know all of Peter's inner logic. And I don't know exactly how Peter landed, where he landed, but I do know this. According to Jesus... In verse 23, Peter's idea is not unique to Peter. 
He's just viewing things the way that man views things. He's just viewing things the way that most of us would end up viewing it apart from God. This is Peter's, this is Jesus' critique of Peter. He says, Peter, you are viewing things through the perspective of, of man, as opposed to setting your mind on what is of God. In other words, according to Jesus, when Peter says that the cross isn't necessary, When Peter says that God would not allow a righteous person to suffer or that there must be a way to get straight to heaven without the cross. According to Jesus, this is not something weird about Peter. This is something that could make sense to people everywhere under the sun. Apart from God. To argue against the cross is plain and simply just viewing things through the perspective, quote, of man. And yet this widely held human perspective is totally at odds with Jesus. That should wake us up a little bit. In fact, you notice, I'm sure, Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke, to Peter's objection, get behind me, Satan. It would have been, I think, clearer to Peter than it is to our ears. The word Satan means adversary or maybe tempter. And what Jesus is saying is, get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, tempter. When we say that the cross is not necessary, we set ourselves up as adversaries, enemies, opponents of Jesus. When we say that the cross isn't necessary, we are like those who test the Lord. There is something Satan-like going on in our hearts when we conclude that the cross is not necessary. And so maybe it's worth pausing long enough this morning to ask how you view the cross. See, as much as we want to laugh at Peter, mock him, how could you say that, you fool? As much as we want to laugh at Peter, the Word of God very often functions like a mirror for us. I wonder, have you wanted to take Jesus aside and rebuke him for how he's leading things? Have you wanted to explain to Jesus that all of this suffering is not necessary? Have you wanted to insist that this whole business of willingly enduring evil is a little bit overkill? Have you got a little bit impatient and just started demanding that the whole kingdom come right now? Or at least a lot more of the kingdom come on my timeline? 
How about this? I'll go first in confession today. I've done that. It turns out that Simon Peter makes a lot of sense to me. When I look in the mirror of God's word, there are times that I've felt in my heart that Jesus is getting it wrong. There are times in my part that I'm just arrogant enough to pick an argument with Jesus in prayer. But listen, I sure am glad that Jesus is patient and forgiving toward fools like Simon Peter and me. I sure am glad that he is patient and forgiving because I need to confess the same arrogance as Simon Peter in arguing against the way of the cross. I need to confess that I've preferred to believe that the cross is not necessary. How about you? But seeing this passage as a mirror only gets us halfway there. We've only considered half of the contrast in this passage. Because there's something more important than Peter's view of the cross in this passage. There's the other half of the contrast. The more important half of the contrast, there's Jesus' view of the cross. And what is Jesus' view of the cross? It is necessary. If you underline things in your Bible, and I'm not here to tell you if you don't that you should, or if you do that you shouldn't, but if you underline things in your Bible, I would recommend that you find in verse 21 the word that is translated in the ESV, must, or in some translations, necessary, And I would recommend that you underline that. Jesus is stating something emphatically in verse 21. And according to verse 21, he's saying it over and over and over again. He's trying to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. That he must be killed. And that on the third day he must be raised. Jesus is showing his disciples that the cross is necessary. It must happen. Jesus could not and would not be deterred from accomplishing his mission. Why? Why is the cross necessary? You know, I already hinted earlier that Peter's own view of the cross would change profoundly over time. People can change. 
In fact, I love to remind you that there is far more hope than you realize because there really is far more grace than you realize. People can change. The grace of God is at work transforming us from within. And later, when Peter began to understand the cross more deeply, and when he went to explain to others what the cross came to mean to him, when he went to explain to others why it was necessary that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise again, do you know how he would do that? Very often he would do that by going to what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Over and over again, Peter loved to use the Hebrew Scriptures to explain the cross of Christ. And if you read the book of Acts, you can hear Peter and his friends quoting from all over the Old Testament to explain why the cross is necessary. And if you go to 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you can read how Peter tries to explain to Christians from various passages all over the Old Testament why it was necessary But there's one passage that Peter quotes deeply in the book of 1 Peter when he tries to explain the cross to Christians. It's a passage that is maybe familiar enough that some of us will just shrug our shoulders. But a passage that's deep enough that's worth spending a couple minutes considering today. When Peter wanted to explain the cross to other Christians... In the book of 1 Peter, one of the places he goes and goes deeply is to Isaiah chapter 53. It seems that Isaiah 53 captured Peter's mind and heart. Isaiah 53 gives him words and pictures and vocabulary to explain the unfathomable depths of what happened when Jesus the Messiah died on the cross. And rose again. So how does Peter and his use of Isaiah 53 help us understand the answer to the question of why the cross is necessary? Let me show you a few answers. I'm going to try to do these briefly. But track with me here. Why is the cross necessary? The cross is necessary, for one thing, for solidarity. The cross is necessary for the sake of solidarity with us in our sorrows, our tears, our pain, our grief, and our suffering. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely... He has borne our what? I think it's on the screen. Griefs. And he carried our what? Sorrows. Why was the cross necessary? Why was it necessary that Jesus as the Son of Man would suffer and die and rise again in part for the sake of solidarity With brothers and sisters like us who suffer and suffer deeply. 
so much more to say about that, but I'm going to try to keep moving here. The cross is necessary for solidarity with us in our suffering. And the cross is also necessary for sin. The cross is necessary not only so that Jesus can stand in solidarity with us in our sufferings, but also so that Jesus can truly be the substitute, the sacrifice who paid the once for all time price to set us free from our sins. Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced for our what? And he was crushed for our what? See, the cross is necessary so that Jesus might stand in solidarity with many brothers who have suffered, many sisters who have suffered. Perhaps more deeply than that, the cross was necessary so that he could stand as our substitute, so that he could suffer in our place, so that his death might pay the only price that will now ever be required for the sake of my sin and yours. Or to quote from John the Baptist, for the sins of the world. The cross is necessary for solidarity. It's necessary for sin. It's necessary for reconciliation. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 tells us. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. This is language of reconciliation that goes even beyond forgiveness. To be at peace with God. Have you longed for something deeper than that in your entire life? To be at peace with God? In fact, Peter picks up this idea and he makes it very explicit. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us back to God. Do you see the reconciling purpose in the cross of Christ? Jesus' death was no accident. It was purposeful. It was planned. Why? So that people like you and me who once were far off from God might be brought back home. Reconciled with Him. Living in peace with our Creator forever. Why did He suffer the righteous for the unrighteous? That He might bring us to God's. The cross is necessary for the sake of solidarity with people like us who have suffered and suffered deeply. The cross is necessary so that Jesus could be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. The cross is necessary for our reconciliation with God. The cross is necessary for victory. Did you know that Isaiah 53 speaks of a victory beyond the suffering of God's servants? 
He had to suffer and die and rise again. And so Isaiah 53 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And then the language shifts away from earlier sheep and shepherd language from out in the field. It shifts away from earlier language in Isaiah 53 that might come from the temple and sacrifices. And it goes out to battlefield imagery. And Isaiah 53 says, therefore, I will divide with, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured his soul out to death. There's a victory that is tied up in the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. A victory over Satan. A victory over the powers of sin that once held us slavery, held us in slavery. The victory over the powers of death. There is a victory that Jesus has won. The cross is necessary for solidarity, for sin, for reconciliation, for victory. But perhaps excavating one layer deeper still. Consider this. The cross is necessary because of God. What do I mean by that? Isaiah 53 puts it like this. Why will the servant suffer? Isaiah 53.10 gives us a clear answer. Listen to this. Quote, It was the will of the Lord. Sometimes we imagine the picture wrongly. Sometimes we imagine that God the Father is cranky and angry and just out to smite somebody. But then gentle and kind and loving Jesus comes along and dies on the cross. And therefore God the Father snaps his finger and says, Oh, shucks, I've got to be nice to them. Or maybe at a more personal level, maybe we hear about forgiveness from God and reconciliation with God. And we think that's a nice idea. And what that really means is that God the Father didn't want me to be around. He didn't want me to be in the family, but he's willing to tolerate me. He's willing to kind of let me in at the periphery of the family picture. But let me tell you, on the authority of God's word, that picture is wrong. The gospel did not come about despite God. The gospel came about because of God. Because of who he is at the very depths of his being. And therefore, Jesus is right when he says, Peter... When you view things the way that of man would view things, the cross won't appear necessary. But do you know why it is necessary? It's necessary because, quote, of God. 
You need to set your mind on things, quote, of God. And when you set your mind on things, quote, of God, you will begin to realize the cross is not an accident. It had to happen. And it had to happen not only because of our needs, but because of His heart. Because of His character. Because of who He is. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. Do you know why the cross happened? Do you know why there is a blood-stained doorway thrown wide open in which we can find safety and security and belonging in the family of God forevermore? Because of God's. The more deeply we consider who God is, the more we will come to realize that the whole design of redemption has to flow from Him. In fact, He Himself is the only true explanation of the cross of Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking. The Apostle Paul tried to put this into words like this. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What's the result? Well, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both from among the Jews and from among the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ crucified represents the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You see, the more we dig into the depths of who our Creator actually is, the more we set our minds on what is of God, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 23, the more we will realize that That this plan to show us a better way to live in a fallen world, this plan to meet us in solidarity in the midst of our real sorrows and pains, this plan to deal with our sin through the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior Himself, this plan to bring us back to God, this plan for a final victory beyond the grave, This plan, in a word defined as the cross, do you realize where all of this comes from? It is of God from first to last. And when we begin to see that, we begin to realize how secure we are in His never-ending love that had no beginning and never will. When we begin to see that, we begin to realize how glorious His wisdom is beyond any wisdom that our minds could put together the pieces of. 
When we begin to see that, listen, don't you want to thank somebody? When we begin to see that, when we begin to see that the cross, which probably is foolishness to the whole world, left to ourselves, but the cross, which is the wisdom of God, when we see that, don't we want to join with the heavenly congregation shouting out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But our hearts don't stop there. Our hearts also agree with those angelic beings that are crying out to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Why is this passage here in our Bibles? And why are we taking a whole Sunday morning to look at three little verses in the unfolding saga of the Gospel of Matthew? Because this passage is an important invitation to us. An invitation of, I think, unfathomable significance. An invitation to move away from the first view of Peter. And perhaps the original view that we felt ourselves to move past the view that the cross is not necessary. And it's an invitation to move toward agreeing with Jesus about his cross. In saying, it is necessary. It's necessary, yes, for our example, as Josh will show us in a couple weeks, because Jesus is about to say to us, Take up your cross and follow me. It's necessary for our example, but it's necessary for so much more. So much more. It's necessary so that he might stand in solidarity with those of us who have suffered profoundly. It's necessary so that he might be the only substitutionary sacrifice who could truly deal with our sins. It's necessary so that we can be reconciled with God and know peace with our Maker. It's necessary for the ultimate victory. It's necessary ultimately because of God, who so loved the world that He sent His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's an invitation to come and rest in the security of what He has already accomplished for us on the cross. It's an invitation to come and discover true love and true belonging in the family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
to find true love and true belonging in this family that designed a plan this wise and this glorious. It's an invitation to join heaven's multitudes in crying out to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, you are worthy. So today, let me invite you to leave behind a rather ordinary view of the cross, saying that can't be necessary. And let me, let me invite you to come and find security, belonging, and joy forevermore in praising the Lamb who was slain because it was necessary.